a joy to be with you today. If you come in these uh, doors week after week, sometimes you come in feeling confident and great. Sometimes you just are barely surviving. Some of you may have come in this morning week and uh, we just worshiped a strong God. One thing is true, God is always the same. As we grow, God's word remains true. And so this morning, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 46. We're gonna study um, just this refuge we have in God. When Scott returns from vacation next week, he's gonna lead us in a five-week series on the theology of the Protestant Reformation. And I know you're thinking we're so close to finishing Mark's gospel, but the month of October is an important month for Protestants. And if you're not quite sure, we, we are Protestant at this church. October 31st, 2017 marks the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Theses. It's a significant moment that sparked a reform movement that changed the world, and we're still thinking about it 500 years later. Now, to be clear, we're not celebrating the birthday of a new church. We're celebrating the rediscovery of the gospel. That's what the Reformation is all about. And so over the next five weeks, we're gonna learn some of those key truths that the Re Reformation recovered that are just as relevant today. I've been on staff now for about five years. We've been talking about October 17, 2017 for about five years now. We're very excited. I'm sure you'll hear Scott's passion for this series next week, but I wanted to go ahead and get the blood flowing and kind of orient our heart there and to do a soft introduction before we officially jump in next week. Perhaps you're wondering though, why we're turning to the Psalms. We don't often associate the Psalms with the Reformation. If you know anything about Luther and his theology, you know that it was two books that really drastically impacted his theology. It was in 1515 that he studied the book of Galatians and he lectured on Galatians to his students. The next year he started Romans and that's where it all started really crystallizing in his head. And by 1517, he was ready to post the 95 Theses. His theology was... Um, crystallized enough. But most people agree that Luther's personal transformation began in 1513, a couple of years before all of this. When he was about 30 years old, he began studying the Psalms and he began lecturing the Psalms. Now, the doctrine of justification of, uh, by faith wasn't quite fully developed yet, and yet Luther's personal reformation began in 1513. This text gave him great confidence in God. There's good evidence that Psalm 46 was one of his favorite psalms. So what we're gonna study this morning. It inspired him to record, uh, to, to write that great hymn we just sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the great Reformation hymn that we'll be singing a lot over the next month. It's recorded that in Luther's darkest moments, he would say to his friends, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. This morning, I'd like to, to explore this influential text that changed Luther's life. It's a psalm that's actually quite relevant for our own context. So let's study it this morning. Psalm 46, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. 
He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Let us pray. Father, we humbly bow before you this morning, knowing that you are strong and we are weak. If the mountains tremble, Lord, at the, at the quaking ocean, what are we? We're, we're absolutely helpless. Our only confidence today is in you, God, and in your enduring and living word. May you be here clearly this morning and may you be in the proclamation of your word today. May you strengthen your church, not for our sake, but for your glory, God. We need you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The psalm dramatically shows us that God is our refuge in a world that's falling apart. Storms of life come, you guys know this. This text teaches us that God is a safe refuge. He's been proven over and over. I enjoy teaching the Psalms because they often have an outline built in and this Psalm definitely has that. It's three separate stanzas, really three movements. There's a progression in this Psalm. First, verses one through three, we must enter the refuge of God. In other words, God is able to protect you from life storms, but you have to enter the fortress. Second stanza, verses four through seven, we find that we must dwell in the fortress of God. It's not enough to simply enter the fortress. We must find life and peace there. The final stanza, verses eight through 11, we must go to the window and look out and see what God is doing. God will one day silence the storms. So we must enter, we must dwell, and we must look out and see God's vision. Let's start with the first stanza. When life falls apart, we must enter the fortress of God. This psalm couldn't start with a more exalted line. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Does this describe your mindset over the last year? Everybody agrees that our world is kind of falling apart right now. Do you watch the news and, and turn it off and go, we will not fear. God is strong right now. I feel like our, our, our theme verse over the last year or two has not been verse one. It's been the last part of verses two and three, which is where the psalmist actually takes a look at what's going on outside the city of God. It's not good. He uses four poetic images to get a, his point across. First, the earth is giving way. Picture this, the earth just crumbling. It feels like that, right? Second, the mountains are being hurled into the heart of the sea. That's not good when that happens. Third, the oceans are roaring and foaming. They're flexing their muscles. Fourth, the mountains are trembling. In other words, when Psalm 46 was written, it was not a good time to be alive. It was a difficult time. Now, in our modern world, we realize that things are just as turbulent, but we probably don't use this kind of language. It's hard for us to imagine Howard's knob sweating at the thought of Myrtle Beach. It just doesn't invoke that kind of fear. In the biblical world, however, the image of the mountain and the image of the sea both carried significant weight. In the, in the, in the Bible, the mountains are the, uh, they represent stability. The mountains never move. In fact, most people believe that the mountains were the pillars 
of the earth. They held the heavens in place. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? The mountains are always gonna be there. If you grew up in this area, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've seen people born, you've seen people die, you've seen houses come, houses go. Everything in your life has changed except that one peak behind your house. Except for that one peak on your drive home, you can always look at Grandfather Mountain and say, it's the same. The mountains are fixed. In my little valley in Avery County, it was spear tops. I've seen that place change over and over. Every year, new people come and go. They cut down the trees. That was a hard day for me. But Speartop Mountains loomed over my childhood. And I can go there today and I can see Speartop Mountains. The mountains are stability. If the mountains represent stability, though, the sea is the exact opposite. It's chaos. It's fear. It's it's actually theologically God's uncreation. The the chaos is uh, everything that's against God's created order. If you think about it, think about Genesis 6. When God decides to judge the world, he could have sent various means to do this, but he sent water. There's theological significance here. He's returning the world to its uncreated order and starting over. Back to what it was in Genesis chapter 1. The ancient people were terrified of the water when, Egypt, when Israel was freed from the nation of Egypt, what did God do? Theological significance here. He parted the waters and they walked across on dry ground. The waters overcome, overcame the enemy. But God's people walked across on dry ground. You know, we have boats. We're not quite as scared. We fly over the oceans. We're not, it didn't bring the same kind of terror as it did in the ancient world, but we still try to grasp the theology of this. In two weeks, we're gonna pull out our big silver tub and we're gonna plunge new believers into their watery grave to show that th- their old life is gone, just like Israel, passing through the waters, just like Jonah, just like Jesus, and they'll be raised into their new life. So the mountains are stability, the ocean, chaos. But in Psalm 46, I want you to hear this. The sea winds in dramatic fashion. The waters roar in foam. The mountains quake. In this text, what we thought was unmovable was consumed by what we fear most. I want you to hear that. What we thought was unmovable was consumed by what we fear most. This happens, doesn't it? When you turned on the TV that Tuesday morning back 16 years ago and you, oh my goodness, what we thought was unmovable was consumed by what we fear most. Maybe you felt this way in that autumn of 2008, that slow progression towards the economy crumbling when you lost all your investments. Maybe you felt this way when you sat in the doctor's office and got the diagnosis. What what you feared most was consumed or consumed what was unmovable. Maybe you felt this way when you got the pregnancy test in your, your bathroom or when you got the email that said you failed the class again or when you got the letter in the mail from the bank. Sometimes in our broken world, the chaos wins. Sometimes the sea swallows the mountain. It roars, it foams, you know it. How should we respond? That's the question, isn't it? That's the question that everybody in the world is asking. What do we do? We see the mountains being hurled into the heart of the sea, but what do we do about it? We go back to verse one. 
The people of God respond with confidence. We will not fear because God is a very present help in times of trouble. He's tested. He's proven himself over and over and over. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We just read the Old Testament. He has proven himself over and over. The mountains may shake, but we won't because God is strong. Now, I realize this sounds dramatic. It sounds a bit over the top, maybe even impossible if you struggle with anxiety. I get that. You've tried, you've read the Bible, but it just doesn't happen. Don't underestimate the power of these words. Let me give you an example. As a child and young adult, (coughs) Martin Luther was overwhelmed with anxiety and depression. In fact, the very reason that he became a monk in the first place was because he got caught up in a thunderstorm. Falling to the ground, he cried out, not to God, but to Saint Anne, the saint of his father's profession, mining. He cried out to Saint Anne, save me. And he made a bargain with her that if he survived, he would enter the monastery. Luther was looking for refuge. He needed protection from the storms of life, but also from the storms inside of his soul. And so he sought it in the monastery, but he didn't find it there. What he found was more chaos, more anxiety, more depression. He said that he almost killed himself with vigils, prayers, and reading. In fact, in one of his journals, he said, if anyone could have saved himself by their monkery, (laughs) it was me. (laughs) I love that line. He refused to use a blanket in the cold stone rooms. He refused to eat. He refused himself sleep as he stayed up late at night fighting against the devil. In fact, it's well documented later on in life, Luther had significant health issues. He blames this period of his life for all of those lingering health issues. It was a miserable time for Luther. In fact, the first time he tried to administer mass, his father was in attendance. His father wanted him to become a lawyer and he resisted. And so he was trying to win his father's approval. All this pressure came caving down as he tried to be a good priest and lead lead the mass. He locked up and he couldn't say the words. It was too weighty for him. He ran out of the church. I'll say this gently, but this kind of encourages me. Because over the next month, it's gonna be very tempting for us to simply remember Luther's triumphs. He posted the 95 theses on that church door and he picked a fight with the most powerful people in the world. His speech at the Diet of Worms is one of the most courageous moments in the history of our church. Luther was bold, he was courageous, but I want you to know that he wasn't born that way. He he was scared just like you and me. He was frightened and terrified, but as he studied the truth of God's word and as he applied these texts to his life, everything about his life changed. He finally found the refuge that he was looking for, not within the walls of the monastery, not within his religious devotion, but within the words of scripture. This is where it all changed for Luther. Now there's evidence, I I want you to hear this. Anxiety, depression followed him the rest of his life. But in those dark moments, when he was weak, when he was needed, when his world fell apart, he trusted in God's word. Reformation's 500 years old, but we need men and women like this with this type of conviction in God's word. Let us run to God when the storms of life overwhelm us. Come, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. So in life's storm, we must enter the fortress of God. But in verse four, the text shifts dramatically. Everything changes here in verse 
four. The next stanza gives us a glimpse inside the fortress. We're outside the city in the first stanza. Now we've entered. Let's read the text again. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. The contrast from these two stanzas couldn't be more pronounced, could it? In the, in the first stanza, you've got the swirling, thrashing waters of the sea. In the second stanza, you have water again, but this time it's a gentle river bringing life to the city. In the first stanza, you have the instability of the mountains. Everything is shaking, but in the second stanza, you have the stability of God's foundation. The first stanza, you have fear. The people are overwhelmed. What do we do? In the second stanza, you have the presence of the Most High. We trust. We have life. This is important to remember as you deal with the storms of life. The first stanza gives us great confidence in God. He protects us, but the second stanza brings joy. This is crucial for us to remember. God's fortress is not, God's fortress is not deserted and barren. It's not a cold, empty building. It's breaming with life. The original audience of the 46th Psalm would have known that strong walls aren't always enough to protect you. In fact, some of the greatest cities in the history of the world fell in spite of their great fortress, in spite of their great walls. There's really a, a, a pretty easy solution to this. If you're an invading army and you approach a well-defended city, you don't just shoot arrows at the rocks. You just set up camp and wait for everybody to starve. It's pretty easy. Problem solved. If you don't have a source of life inside the city, it doesn't matter. You're, you're dead. Just soon enough, you'll starve. Now, we might not defend ourselves inside of a tall city wall anymore, but I think we can understand this. We do try to defend ourselves. There's lots of ways in our modern world to defend ourselves from the storms of life. You can buy insurance. You can save up a little nest egg for the future. You can devote yourself to a political cause, to a politician. You can buy a home security system. You can drive the safest car on the road. Last week, I'm sure you got e-insurance because we all need that now, thanks to Equifax. We just try to protect ourselves. These options are very appealing in a world that's falling apart. We need protection, don't we? These walls might bring us security, but they won't bring us joy and peace. Don't you find it ironic that the presence of these man-made security systems often increase our fear? We think we're making ourselves safer, but really we're becoming more anxious. These things, we realize they can protect our stuff, our body for a while, but they can't bring us life. Strong walls aren't enough. We need life within the city. According to Psalm 46, the church should not have this problem. God protects us from the chaos, but he also brings us life because there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. He nourishes us. He feeds us with the gospel. That's why I'm so excited over the next month to be studying the gospel. It's what we need to hear. But this isn't always the case, is it? Churches can be very fearful places. I talked to two people this week 
who grew up in the church as a kid. But then about college, they, they left because it was a fearful place. Perfect love, the Bible tells us, drives out fear. Not the other way around. Fear shouldn't drive people from our midst, but that's what we're finding. I'm finding the more and more I talk to unbelievers, especially in our very secular age, they can tell you, people that are outside of Christianity, they can look at the church and they can tell us what our stance is on some of the major moral issues of the day. They know very clearly what we believe about certain topics. They see our walls, but they've never heard the gospel. And that breaks my heart. You tell them what Jesus has done for them and they're like, I've never heard that before. They see our walls, but they don't see our life. May we lead with the gospel. We have life. This is what God brings to us. And again, it's what we're studying next week and I'm so thrilled about that. It's what we need, it's what the world needs to hear. Now, I believe the Reformation was so successful because by and large, the reformers understood this. They didn't get it perfect, but I think most of the time they understood this concept. In other words, when Luther grappled with the Psalms, his theology developed, but, but more importantly, his life changed. There's certain features of his life that just got better. In fact, listen, he got married. This is a significant moment. It was revolutionary for Luther to get married. He started a family. He had children. They enjoyed one another. Even, he liked his family. He wrote music. His home was filled with songs. That's revolutionary. He, endure, he re reformed the church, but he also reformed the home life. And I think that's a significant moment from the Reformation. One of the enduring legacies of the Reformation is Luther's table talks. You can find records of his dinnertime conversations with his family and friends. Literally, some guy sat down in a corner and wrote down in a journal everything they talked about. Kind of nerdy, but I think it's kind of awesome because we can go back and listen to what they talked about around the dinner table, around these home-cooked meals late into the night. Do you know what they rarely talked about? the Reformation, this shocks me. They rarely, you know, if it were me, I, you know, this thing started, I'd be like, guys, we got some potential here. Let's check in on France. Let's check in on Switzerland. How are things moving? I think I would have been obsessed with this. They didn't, they, they weren't obsessed. They just let it happen. God's word was moving across Europe and they just let it happen. Do you know what they talked about around the dinner table? They talked about God. They talked about Jesus. They talked about their justification, not by works, but by faith. You have to remember that the gospel was hidden for ages, for generations, and now around those dinnertime conversations, they're talking about God's free grace. Suddenly, they're reading the Bible in their own language. Can you imagine the joy? I, I, I'm sure they hungered for the word of God. What's the new translation that he was working on? Read it. Read it to us. It was marked by joy. May we be defined for the same, by the same love and passion for Jesus and for his word 500 years later. Now, I want you to hear this. This joy and hope and life and peace, it doesn't make our problems go away. Becoming a Christian doesn't make your problems stop. But here's what it does. It puts your problems in their right perspective. It, 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 it makes them seem small. L listen to this verse. One of my favorite verses in uh, the Bible, verse six. 
Here we go. After talking about this river that's bringing joy, suddenly it's like they hear some noise outside. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. Our problems resurface again. When you find joy in life and in the Lord, your problems will want to resurface. But this time, they don't seem as big. He utters his voice. The earth melts. Your problems are just gonna seem large and God's gonna say, stop. And they'll, they'll go away. Think about it. Your home security systems, they make your problems seem bigger. When you trust in God and you find your joy in God, your problems seem small. As the hymn says, one little word shall fail him. This brings us to the third and final stanza. So far we've entered the fortress, we've found life in the fortress. Now the psalmist is gonna take us to the window and ask us to look out. This is where I think a lot of us are missing in the church. He's gonna show us a prophetic vision of the future. The storms rage now, but I wanna show you a picture when the storms stop. Because this is where history is heading. Listen to this vision. Verse eight. Come, behold the works of the Lord how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Again, this is prophetic language. Come behold. It sounds like Isaiah, doesn't it? Come and behold the works of the Lord. Obviously, God hasn't stopped every war, but this psalm, anticipate the days when all of God's enemies are silenced. Come and look. This is frankly language that the church needs to recover. We are a prophetic people. We've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light so that we can proclaim his excellencies. We must speak the future. We, we know how it ends. Maybe this is the problem. In fact, I want to suggest that maybe, maybe the reason our church is filled with so much fear is because we've, we've forgotten the future. We've, we, we've stopped looking out the window to see how this thing is going to pan out. We've become short-sighted. We're, we're focusing everything on these little battles. We're losing ground. We're freaking out. God has won the war. We're, we're so concerned with this. We need to cultivate a powerful vision of the future so that we can proclaim the truth of the gospel to a dark and dying world. The stanza gives us this vision. Come and look. God has stopped war. God has broken the weapons of war. Now, I realize this doesn't carry much weight in Watauga County, but the people of Congo can feel it. Brothers and sisters in Sudan can feel it. In the Middle East, in Korea, where war looms, it's just life-giving. God stops it. He breaks the weapons. Aren't you ready to not worry about nuclear weapons anymore? That day is coming. Now, you might not feel the sting of war here, but you certainly feel the destructive consequences of sin. You feel it every hour. You see the hurricanes There's nothing you can do about it, it seems. You feel the arrows of the devil when you're weak. We need to be reminded of our future. God will make it all stop. 
I'm gonna read one of my favorite texts in the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. Get a picture of how it all ends. Here's a little context. After a thousand years of bondage, Satan will be released and he's angry. (laughs) He'll go across the face of the earth and gather an army. He will be well-armed and very hot. Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verses seven through 10. This is how the battle will go. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Picture it. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up. You feel the drama building? They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they would be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Game over. It's not even a fight. They build up this drama and God says, no. That's how it all ends. His craft and power are great. He's armed with cruel hate. On earth is not as equal. One little word shall fell him. Satan will be silenced with a word. Do you believe that? Does that belief impact you today? It's a good time to talk about the most famous verse in the text, verse 10. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. And I've always assumed this verse, out of its context, it's a beautiful verse. I've always assumed this is talking about having a personal quiet time. Actually, the text has something far greater in mind. Full disclosure, I'm not trying to destroy your theology of a personal quiet time. I believe in personal quiet times, okay? We need to have personal quiet times, but there's actually better texts in the Bible to go to than Psalm 46, verse 10. This has something far greater in mind. I believe these words are a direct command from God to his enemies to shut up. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted. You won't get the glory. I will. This is God's words to his enemies. I think it's good for us to remember the time where the disciples woke Jesus up in the middle of the storm. The storms of life are raging. They're about to drown. They wake up Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't turn around and say to them, guys, relax. Did you have your quiet time today? Now's a good time to have your quiet time. That's not what Jesus did. He looked at the storms and he said, peace, be still. And the storms obeyed. We have that coming. These words are a part of our prophetic vision. When God speaks the word, every hurricane will disappear. You saw it for for a week. You saw that hurricane churn. And there's nothing you can do about it. God will utter the word and it'll stop. It will obey. Satan will be silenced. Every cancer cell will go away. The weapons of war will be broken. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. May we cling to this compelling vision of the future. Luther derived a great amount of confidence from this psalm. It changed his life. I hope that you'll derive the same amount of confidence. God is trustworthy. He's strong. You can run to him this morning. 
You need to constantly sing this song. If we're gonna close and we're gonna keep singing because we constantly need to be reminded of this truth because at times, let's just be honest, he doesn't seem trustworthy. The storms of life blow and they overwhelm us. The final battle hasn't occurred yet. He's not uttered the words yet. We know he will, but he hasn't spoken yet. Satan's on the prowl. He's not locked up. Seems like the sea overcomes the mountains. At times, it seems like Satan gets the glory, doesn't it? It's like he stands over you and triumphs and laughs. Cancer wins the battle. Death sometimes wins. And in these chaotic moments, this is, you're vulnerable. And I know some of you walked into the church this morning feeling vulnerable. Satan will offer you a fake refuge. This is, his craft is great. When the storms of life come, he'll come to you and say, I can protect you. This is exactly what he did to Jesus. He took Jesus up on the temple and said, I can protect you. He took him to the mountain and he said, I can give this to you. Don't listen. He can't. It's a lie. Jesus refused Satan. He refuged in God. This morning, may we do the same. May we trust in Jesus Christ. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. When the darkness comes, let us cling to Jesus and let us say with Luther, come, let's sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. Let's pray. Lord, we do gather this morning as a weak people. We don't pretend to have it all together. We don't pretend to be confident in the middle of life storms. They blow and they scare us, God, just like the disciples, just like Luther, just like every human that's ever walked the face of this earth. We are no better. We have no merit. We have no protection on our own, God. We are completely dependent on you. God, we thank you that you provide us a great shelter. Thank you for Jesus who sought us and brought us in. Without the life of Christ, Lord, we're helpless. We're vulnerable to the storms, but we have a great shelter in Christ. Not only that, we have life. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Lord, would your river flow in this church this morning? Would you gladden us as we respond now to this text with worship? And Lord, may we look out the window and see what you are doing. Come behold the works of the Lord. You're gonna make it all stop one day. You're gonna silence your enemy and receive great glory. May you be exalted on that day. But this morning, may you be exalted in this room where we wanna rise now and pray and sing with all that we have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.